That which distinguishes us from one another is our identity. Our identity is conditioned by many factors. And I have been speaking about, over the last two talks, two different mental states, two of the three papancha. Conceit and craving, which we see in our practice proliferate in the mind and give us a sense of ourself unique among all others. Tonight I want to speak about the third papacha, the third area of the proliferation of thoughts, the diffuseness of thoughts in the mind. And that is the papancha of ditti. And ditti means view or understanding. And specifically, papancha refers to wrong views, wrong understandings. And the primary wrong understanding that the Buddha identified that is the most pernicious, persistent, and the most deceptive meaning that it misleads us most harmfully, is this wrong view of self. This wrong view is rooted in attachment, accompanied by restlessness, and uh, rooted also in delusion. Attachment to what? Attachment to a self. A belief in an enduring entity within this mind-body process. Restlessness is the activity of the mind. And the restless activity of thought is the source or the activity of this papancha wrong view, and delusion, restlessness, and identification or attachment. The essential elements of this papancha. And so we can understand that if we are to somehow come out from under the cloud of this delusion, We must confront restlessness, attachment, and delusion. As I've mentioned in the previous talks, the miracle of mindfulness is that it exposes this proliferation of thoughts in the mind so that we can begin to see through the appearance of self that these thoughts condition. And that's the task of mindfulness, to deconstruct this uh, mirage, if you will, of self into its component pieces and see that 
The self, indeed, is an appearance that has no inherent existence. Like a rainbow in the sky. A rainbow appears in the sky due to specific conditions, light, moisture, and the right viewing angle. A rainbow appears. There's no question that there is an appearance in the sky of this colorful rainbow. But does that rainbow have any inherent existence in and of itself? Can you touch it? Can you move it around? Can you do anything with it? Is there any solid substance enduring anything there? No. It is just a conjunction of conditions giving rise to the appearance of a rainbow. The self is just like that. A conjunction of conditions comes together, albeit it's a very complex set of conditions, comes together and there appears a self. which we identify with to our own detriment because when conditions change if we are identified with the self that was constellated at that time we will suffer. It is the insight into anicca, anatta and in this case uh, anicca, dukkha and in this case anatta which overcomes this misbelief and ultimately uproots the wrong view of self from the mind. The Buddha said of this wrong view, this ditti, the wrong view of personality belief or ego belief, self, has everywhere and at all times most misled and deluded beings. When we take the infinitely rich, detailed constellation of conditions that give rise to this mind-body process, and we identify it, identify with it, and believe that there is something enduring within it, we are under the influence of this mental state, ditti, wrong view. I've mentioned before, but I should repeat, that in ordinary reality, in our consensual reality, it is important to have a clear, well-defined, and maintained sense of self to know who you are, to know the boundaries between you and others and where your feelings start and stop and where their feelings start and stop, responsibilities start and stop, and to be clear about that, to not merge into some amorphous uh, psychic emotional soup and just kind of disappear. That's not uh, spiritual maturity at all.
but that identification with the sense of self needs to be seen as flexible, something that we can see through, let go of, uh, bring into being when necessary, and let go when not necessary. So it's helpful if we can look at this belief in self and see how it has come about in our life and how we might, through practice, be able to see through it see through this belief, and in the process, let go of unnecessary suffering. There are five conditions, five experiences, that the Buddha identified and pointed out as being the experiences that we are most likely to identify with as me, as a self. And the first of these is the body. We look in the mirror every day and we say, that's me. And every day it looks pretty much the same and we say, that's who I am. And we have been taught you know, to identify with this body from the time we were a little kid, you know, a babe. Mom picks us up, strokes us a little bit and says, hello you, Steve, you know, Carol, John, Paul, whoever you are, you know, and uh, get attached to this body. And so we do. And then we, we uh, even though the body goes through its changes, it grows up, it matures, it, uh, you know, it goes through some uh, superficial changes in appearance and all. There's, a, there's an obvious continuity to it. But in spite of all that change, our identification remains solid. Most of us have a very... detailed and rich uh, personal relationship with our body. And when something happens to our body, we believe it happens to me. And we believe this is my body. This is who I am. It's mine, my body. Ordinarily, no problem. But what happens when the body gets sick. You've all had the experience, and, and many of you on this retreat, having some uh, symptoms of disease, a cold, or uh, earache, or, uh, you know, toothache, or, uh, you know, something even more, more severe than that, even. The symptoms of the disease are, you know, painful enough, but we can learn to be with them. What is far worse and far more suffering than the actual symptoms of the disease is the mental chatter that goes on around, oh, poor me. Why me? 
What did I do to get this? What kind of bad karma is this a result of? And uh, how long is this going to last? And I wonder, gee, maybe this is something more severe and serious than I think. And, you know, and we worry and we're frustrated and we're disappointed and we're, we're afraid and we're, you know, we're kind of concerned. And the symptoms of the disease are a little throbbing in the knee, a little tickling in the throat, an occasional cough, and a little quivering or something and the trembling and a feeling of weakness in the body suffering enough but the mental suffering is far greater and that is all because of our identification with this body and if we can see the body as the body a set of conditions unfolding throughout time somewhere in the universe experience it as we will, but not identify with it, all that suffering is extra. All that mental suffering is unnecessary. But it comes because we're identified, attached to, believe in, this body is me, who I am. Well, diseases, they come and go for the most part, but aging comes and stays. (laughs) what happens when we see as we inevitably all do we step in front of the mirror one day and we see wrinkles we didn't see before gray hairs or no hairs we didn't see before (laughs) and we see gravity taking over and suddenly everything is looking a whole lot different. And so we uh, get out the yellow pages and we look up plastic. (laughs) You know, under surgeons. And we, you know, or we go to the club. Maybe we go to the club first, you know, and we uh, pump up and we do what we have to do. And we look up for body sculpting and hair coloring and hair implants and hair removal and, you know, lifting and tucking and pulling and emptying and all that stuff. And, uh, we try to regain an appearance that we feel proud to identify with, right? I think Kamala mentioned that uh, near where we live is uh, a good friend, Buzzy, who has uh, uh, is a personal trainer, has a little club, and um, so he's offered Kamala and I uh, all the help we need. <laughs> 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 so, so I got invited to uh, participate in the men's group that uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, early in the morning. And uh, you know how in these clubs, you know, you go, you work out on the machines? Hmm? You don't just work out on the machines to feel how it feels. You watch yourself in the mirrors <laughs> that line the walls, you know? And, uh, you know, you're pumping up, you're doing your things. And, and I, you know, I see others, and I must say, I... Yeah, me too. You walk around <laughs> and you hold yourself a certain way just to see uh, how's it look, you know. And of course, everybody's giving each other strokes, you know. It's like, hey, wow, you're about an eight in potential. You know, your legs are really something. You know, you work on those. You're <laughs> what are we doing there? Identifying more with uh, uh, conditioning a greater identification with the body and especially 
the appearance of the body that we want, that we feel, you know, proud of, or that we, we, we feel comfortable with. And when we don't get that reflection in the mirror of the body that we want to be identified with, it's uh, suffering. That's what it is, suffering. Our concern for the body extends way beyond health concern. Yeah, it's good to have, you know, it's good to be, you know, do your exercise, do a little aerobics and, and uh, take, eat, eat right and uh, whatnot. But our concern for the appearance of the body, body sculpting, weight, all of that is a whole realm of unnecessary suffering because of identification with appearance of the body. came across this lovely poem, refers to this um, universal condition. It's called, Cosmetics Do No Good. And even though it is about uh, a woman in this case, it also uh, applies to men equally well. Cosmetics do no good. No shadow, rouge, mascara, lipstick, nothing helps. However artfully I comb my hair, embellishing my throat and wrists with jewels, it is no use. There is no semblance of the beautiful young girl I was and long for still. My loveliness is past, and no one could be more aware that I am that coquettishness at this age only renders me ridiculous. I know it. Nonetheless, I primp myself before the glass like an infatuated schoolgirl, fussing over every detail, practicing whatever subtlety may please him. I cannot help myself. The god of passion has his will of me, and I am tossed about between humiliation and desire, rectitude and lust, disintegration and renewal, ruin and salvation. If we haven't seen it yet, we will. We come to practice. We begin to look at this body in a different way, not in the mirror. But we begin to feel it from the inside out. And what do we discover? The senses the ears, the eyes, the, the, the body, the, the ability to feel things of the body. They operate automatically. Do we make them work? Can we control whether we hear or not, whether we see or not, whether we feel uh, pain in the body or not? We cannot. We are kind of uh, at the whim uh, of our body. We have a sense of our uh, body image. We close our eyes, we pay attention, and there comes these other experiences of feeling, you know, uh, three times the size that we know ourselves to be, ten times the weight that we think we really are. Uh, sometimes we're expanded in size, shrunken in size, 
Sometimes we're light as a feather. We see that the body as experienced from within, the reality behind the appearance is very, very different than the appearance. And what is to distinguish one from the other behind the appearance? The unfolding of the body is beyond our control. It is going to go through its processes and we just have to put up with it, really. When we pay close attention to the experience of the body from a direct, tangible experience, we begin to loosen the glue of identification. When we see how random, conditional, how uh, insubstantial the body really is. And each glimpse of the body in its true nature, hard, soft, heat, cold, moving, still, loosens that glue. You know, we sit, we feel uh, real hot, or we feel real cold, or we feel pulsing, really, lively, or we're tingling, pain, throbbing, whatever. When you isolate that one experience, throbbing, is that you? To say, oh, I'm throbbing. Me, that's who I am. Throbbing is who I am. Or this heat, this is my heat. Or this tickling, this itching. This is who I am, really. It doesn't make much sense. We look beneath the appearance, and and what we see is the composite elements of this body that we get identified with. In seeing it in its composite pieces, we begin to loosen the glue. It isn't a matter of belief whether we are the body or not. Our identification is through habit. And it's only through cultivating direct perception of the body that we will see through this illusion. It isn't a matter of belief. It's a matter of direct experience. The Buddha said, or to paraphrase the Buddha, he said, this this entire universe is to be found into is to be discovered in this fathom long body whatever you can feel discover experience know in this universe anywhere is discovered in this body and if we pay attention to this body that's what we will discover that's what we will open to So we have the body as an obvious source of identification, belief in self, and obviously the source of a tremendous amount of unnecessary suffering, unnecessary concern, anxiety. The second experience that the Buddha pointed to 
is the experience or the activity of consciousness, citta in the Buddhist language, consciousness. And primarily we experience citta or consciousness as thought, creation of thought-constructed worlds. You know, we live in a thought-constructed world much of the time. Close your eyes, imagine home, that's a thought-constructed world. Imagine the future, that's a thought-constructed world. Imagine the past, thought-constructed. There's no reality to it other than it's a thought in the mind. One of the areas of a lot of thought is the creation of a sense of self through the roles and relationships that we have in our life. You know, when I was born, my mother picked me up, stroked me a little bit, said, Oh, Stevie, you're my son. You know, and my brother looked at me and said, Oh, you're my brother. And it's gone on like that for 50-some years now. You're my teacher, you're my student, you're my partner, you're my, you know, employer, you're my employee, and on and on and on and on. And through this intricate and vast, extensive web of roles and relationships, I have a pretty clear sense of who I am. And it's all maintained because I and many others keep repeating it in their head. Just keep remembering, that's who I am. And even though the roles and relationships have changed, the identification stays. Inability to let go of all identifications. We just transfer it from one role to the next. Okay. This vast complex of roles and relationships weaves this unique personal tapestry called Steve. The complexity of this package is so vast that it is difficult to see through the illusion that there's something there. You walk into a museum. On the far wall is a tapestry hanging, big tapestry. And you see it, you know, it's a, it's a, a picture of uh, two uh, women uh, standing around a table with a bowl of fruit on it, you know, from ancient times. And you say, oh, that's nice, yeah. And so we really get into the content of the tapestry. And we look at the different women and how they look, and then we look at the fruit and how, you know, what it, whatever it is. And then we get closer. We walk closer to this tapestry, and suddenly we don't see the whole thing because we're too close to it. All we see is the bowl of fruit. You know, we're looking at, you know, the, the apples, the oranges, and the pears, and wow, they look so real. You know, you want to reach right in there and grab one. And, <coughs> and you get a little bit closer, and suddenly you lose the focus of... Uh, a bowl of fruit, and all you see is just some colors kind of splashed in front of you. You can't see really what it is, and you get really close, and all you see is these threads. And then you start picking it apart, or you don't really pick it apart. The museum <laughs> wouldn't like that. But if you could pick that apart, you would find 
all these little bits and pieces of different colored thread. That's the reality behind the appearance of that bowl of fruit on a table in a room with two women. It's an illusion. There's no women, there's no bowl, there's no fruit. All there is is these little microscopic threads of color. The same thing is going on in our mind. We take all these little bits and pieces, the little pixels of our life, if you will. You know, the pixels are what makes up the picture on your computer screen. You know, those hundreds of thousands of things. You take these little pixels of your life, a sensation here, a thought there, uh, you know, a sound there, and a twitch here, and a piece of uh, this, that, and the other thing. You glue them all together, and you have the tapestry of your life, which we jump in and believe and live. This practice takes us into the reality behind the appearance. What do we see? What makes up our roles and relationships, our career, our, uh, you know, who we are in life, our position, our status, or whatever? What determines that? Thought. The activity of thought. Without the activity of thought, there's no role, there's no relationship. There's no, there's no hierarchy, there's no um, role to play. Now, ordinarily, we need our roles, we need our relationships, we need to move through life. But when we're identified with our role, we're identified with our career, we're identified our, with our relationship, and we don't get uh, kind of a confirmation from others, or we don't get affirmation from others, or others challenge our identification, well, then we suffer. Because we can't let go of the appearance created by this thought. I know many of you have heard this story. But I'm going to tell it anyway. Because we travel and uh, lead, lead retreats, we fly a lot on United Airlines. And uh, we are both frequent flyers. Well, we fly enough that we get special status, premier, frequent flyer. And when you're premier, they like you because you fly a lot and they send you some upgrades and uh, you get to go fly first class every once in a while. You get your choice of the better seats on the plane. You can board early. You can do, you know, there's things, benefits, if you will. And um, so we enjoy the benefits because that's our role. That's our relationship to United Airlines. One day I had to fly from San Francisco to Boston, but I had to take a flight earlier than my scheduled flight, and I had to fly standby. Called up the airport. They said, there's plenty of seats, open seats on this plane. I went to the airport. They said, oops, sorry, we canceled one of our other flights. They're all going on this plane. There's no seats. Thank you very much. Um, well, I'd like to fly standby, and I'm a frequent flyer. I'm a premier frequent flyer. <laughs> uh, I would like the uh, any empty seat if there is one. So I went to the gate, waited, all pandemonium at the gate, and uh, they're in a hurry to get out on time. Everybody boards the plane, except those three people who are waiting to fly standby. 
So they said, well, we don't know if there's any seats, empty seats. Come down to the door of the plane. We walked down the gangplank, the runway, or down the, uh, the, the, the thing there. And uh, they're getting everybody set down in the plane. And they said, oh, there's one seat empty. And I said, I'm the one with the most frequent flyer miles. <laughs> I'd be happy to sit in that seat. So they said, okay. So I got on. I was so happy. And I was putting my stuff away, crowded between these two big, big football players. And it was just like, oh, it's very, it's really uncomfortable. But I was so happy I was going to get to Boston on time. And then while I was settling in, they found another empty seat. So they put the second person in that empty seat up behind me somewhere, closed the door, ready to push off from the gate. Somebody gets up by the first class and says, I'm on the wrong plane. i got to get out of here. So open the door, let him out. So... They said, oh, hey, you, you, the third person that was wanting to fly, stand by, come here. Now there's a seat. <laughs> so on walks this guy, been living on the beach, dreadlocks, you know, everything he owns is in a small little bag, and uh, flip-flops, great tan. <laughs> and they put him in the first-class seat. At that point, my identification with being a frequent flyer <laughs> arose in my mind, and I said, I pushed the button, and I said, <laughs> oh, uh, Stuart, uh, I think I could have that seat up there. <laughs> I think I'd enjoy that seat up there. And they said, sit down, you've got your seat, we're backing out of the gate, we're trying to get off on time. And I was in a, a stew. I was so, uh, I was just trying to figure out how am I going to get that first class seat? <laughs> and I was miserable. I was miserable. They, they pushed off from the gate, they took off, and there I was sitting in this terrible seat way up back between these two guys, and I was so unhappy. I was just composing my letter to write to United Airlines, frequent flyer, and tell them how badly I'd been treated and what a misjustice, and that they should offer me some free upgrades. And, <laughs> and I was really suffering. And then after about a half hour, I said, hey, wait a minute. I got another five and a half hours of this flight. <laughs> Is this how I want to spend my time and then arrive in Boston at six in the morning like that? No, I don't think so. So I said, oh, let that go. Let that go. <laughs> and after a few reminders, I let that go. I just, while well, I'm on the plane, I could feel a seat under me. I knew I was on the plane. <laughs> and I was going to get there on time, and, and it was okay. Now, my identification with that role and that special relationship with United Airlines caused me a tremendous amount of suffering for that period of time. And then I got in touch with the reality behind the appearance. What's the reality behind the appearance? You're sitting on a plane, you're feeling a certain vibrations, you're going to get to where you need to go on time. That's the reality. No suffering in that. Let go of that identification with myself as a premier frequent flyer. Let go of that. 
The only thing that happens, the only change, the only difference when we let go of our identification is we stop suffering. Everything else remains the same. When we let go of our identification with self, when we let go of our identification with our roles, our relationships, our careers, whatever, nothing changes except we stop suffering. Now, I don't want to sound too casual. You don't just let go of your relationships and think that nothing's going to happen and no suffering's going to happen. If it doesn't cause other suffering, fine. Let go of your role. Let go of your relationship. If it causes other suffering, then respect your roles and relationship. If it doesn't hurt anyone, it's important consideration in whether we maintain our identification or let it go too casually. Okay. The activity of the mind, thinking, creating roles, relationships, careers, uh, status, prestige, whatever, is all activity of the mind. If we can let go of identification with it, we suffer less. Okay. The third experience that the Buddha pointed out and identified as an area of life that we are very likely to and habituated to get identified with and attached to is our memories. Okay. You meet someone new for the first time and they say, oh, hi, who are you? Usually, we have this litany of memories that we roll out to present to them who we want them to believe we are. Oh, I was born here, I went to school there, I'm, uh, I work here, and I uh, you know, have done these things in my life, and that's who I am. And as long as we can maintain that sequence and coherence of memories and present it consistently to the world, then, um, and consistently to ourselves, then we uh, feel reasonably safe, reasonably secure, pretty stable, and uh, everybody knows who we are. And then we come to practice. And we, we know who we are, we know what we've been through, and we know that we're a good person, and we're a good yogi, and we have a lot of determination, a lot of energy. And then we start practicing, and what happens? Suddenly, we all the skeletons start coming out of our closet, and memories that we haven't thought of in 20 or 30 years start coming into vivid color in front of us. And some of those memories that uh, reappear, we would just as soon forget, right? And that's why we haven't remembered them, because we have forgotten them, because they don't fit our image of ourselves. You know, the times that we treated others uh, cruelly or uh, a 
abusively or abrasively or harshly or inconsiderately and we've we've caused them pain sometimes intentionally sometimes unintentionally and we've just you know we've all we all have a history of uh, some less than desirable uh, behavior you know painful behavior causing ourselves pain causing others pain and uh, when it when it comes into view it uh, confronts our sense of self, the one that we try to maintain to ourselves and to others. And, uh, gee, what happens? We suffer. We suffer because we're identified with some memories and we're not identified and we don't want to even remember others. But they come into view because mindfulness, it just says, let's see everything. Okay. What are we going to do? How are we going to maintain a sense of self in the face of memories which don't fit? Causing us pain, fear, anxiety, irritation, confusion. There's a question in some circles these days, in the psychological circles, whether possible to recover memory. Does anybody have any doubt? <laughs> really? One woman I was working with on a longer retreat, middle-aged woman, living her ordinary middle-aged, middle-class life with, you know, the usual stuff. Good yogi. Suddenly starts feeling a tremendous amount of fear. No content. Just tremendous fear. Body contracting in all the symptoms of great fear. And mind starts being flooded with uh, just images that uh, don't seem to fit her life. Uh, don't, 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 they're just chaotic. They don't, they don't make any sense. She can't remember any of this. It seems like it's happening to somebody else. But it's terrorizing her. Hmm? Along with it comes uh, a lot of uh, shame, a lot of humiliation, and uh, slowly the, the bits and pieces of uh, the 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 images start to fit together. And she sees, and she, she uncovers and rediscovers a whole time in her life when she was very young where she was uh, uh, abused badly. And uh, at that age in her life, she couldn't uh, really acknowledge, she didn't really know what was going on, except that she felt the fear, the terror, the shame, the humiliation, and buried it. Up until the age of 35, no knowledge whatsoever of those years of her life. And yet, mindfulness is just, uh, is, you, you, <coughs> you can't stop it. Mindfulness will uncover everything. And it all came into view. And uh, she was unable to maintain 
a, uh, a steady grip, really, on consensual reality. We say she was regressed to an early age and just living, living in that reality of that age. But with a lot of mindfulness. Now with mindfulness, with full awareness of what's going on. At the feeling level, at the feeling level. Trying to make sense of it. Well, it took a few years, a few years, three to five years of a lot of work, a lot of mindfulness, a lot of uh, psychotherapeutic work, until she could really come to open to the feelings, accept them, let them go, and, and as not, and, and see that they do not, in and of themselves, constitute herself. Past, true. Memories, yes. Self, no. And so in this, uh, through this process, she's able to get in touch with the lost parts of herself. And to integrate them into a, uh, a sense of self which is dynamic, alive, adaptable, uh, able to be with all conditions and able to let go of all conditions. The memories remain. The identification with them is let go of. This is freedom. This is where you really begin to free yourself from your identification with specific memories. Painful or pleasant. The ones that you select are the ones that you can't keep out. When you can let them all go. We are not our memories. Our memories do not point to who we are. If we don't hold on. If we're not identified with them. It's the task of mindfulness to see things now as they are. To see memories as memories, feelings as feelings, sensations as sensations. Not self. Memories are not self. Sensations are not self. Feelings are not self. T.S. Eliot understands this process, or understood this process when he wrote, We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we first started and know it for the first time. Identification with the body, identification with the activity of thoughts, consciousness in the mind, identification with memories. Fourth experience that the Buddha pointed to is identification with the other mental states that arise in the mind, primarily chetana or volition. I spoke briefly about it the other night. I want to Fill it out a little bit more. Volition is the activity of a mental state, chitana. Through volition, we make choices. We make decisions. We make choices. We pick and choose. We decide to do what it is we do. 
as long as we can choose what we want, we feel empowered. We feel a solid sense of self. We feel like we are in control. I am in control of my life. We come to practice, and as long as we can maintain that uh, uh, misbelief, we're, we're reasonably happy. And then we start practice, and wouldn't you know it, that mindfulness pulls the rug out from underneath us again, and we sit down, we pay attention, and we realize <coughs> that much of the time we're on automatic pilot. Who's running the show? When you discover, as, as we all have seen, how automatic we do much of the behaviors in our life. We find ourselves halfway through a meal before we even realize that we've heard the bell and gone through the lunch line. You know, the bell rings to end the sitting, we're halfway out the door before we even know it. Or little things. We brush our teeth every day. Has anybody noted it yet? The whole sequence of, you know, the tube on the, the squeezing the, 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 the paste on the brush, the screwing back on the cap. What does screwing the cap on the toothpaste feel like? Have you noted it? Many times, at least once a day, maybe more. And then the lifting and the brushing and how that feels and you're noting that. We do it every day. But the habit of repetition has kind of numbed us out. And so we do it on automatic pilot. We don't make the decision. We don't even carry it through. It just happens. And only those few big decisions in each day. Hmm. Which salad dressing? You know? <laughs> then we're in control, right? We really, we're really moving our life in the direction of our choice. The rest is automatic pilot. Okay. So, earlier in the retreat, we asked you to begin to note your intentions. You know, you're sitting and you feel an itch, you're about to reach for it. You note the impulse in the mind before you reach, so that you know who is reaching and why. Or you, you note the intention before you stand up, before you adjust your posture, before you reach for anything, before you put on your shoes or, or whatever it is you do. We ask you to do this so that you begin to notice who's making the decisions. Okay. So we come in, we sit down. After 35 minutes, the elephant is stepping on the knee. And it's just getting excruciating. And the debate begins, should I move or not? Okay. Fear enters the mind and says, I better move now. I'm going to hurt my knee. I'm not going to be able to walk if I don't move soon. And aversion says, I hate this. I hate this discomfort. I hate this pain. I want to get rid of it. And desire says, wouldn't it be nice to shift right now and, and get some relief? And compassion says, oh, be kind to your suffering. You know, relieve your suffering as best you can, shift. And determination to be a good yogi says, no, I'm going to sit here, I'm, I'm going to sit until I attain freedom, and I'm going to... And 
The energy says, yes, okay, let's bear with it. And patience says, I can be with anything. And doubt says, <laughs> right? And doubt says, what in the world am I setting with this thing for anyway? What's the benefit of it all? And boredom says, I've been here before. <laughs> and at some point we move, right? Who moved? Who made the decision to move? Which mental state arose in the mind, conditioned the impulse, and the impulse moved the body? Are you doubt? Are you aversion? Are you desire? Are you patience? Are you impatience? I don't think so. And yet, we think, if we don't look very carefully, we're in control. We identify with the appearance of someone in here who is making the decision. Right? When you look carefully, when you, when you pay very close attention to the reality behind the appearance, do you find anyone in there making the decision? No. There's this ever-changing flow of impersonal phenomena running through the mind. Mental states, sensations, likes and dislikes, and boredom and aversion and determination. And it's, just, it's just all flooding through the mind rapidly and conditioning the behavior of the body, the behavior of the mind. If we don't look carefully, we think, I made the decision. If we look carefully, we see how absurd that statement really is. Now, it's difficult to see this. We've all had that debate. Do I move or not? And mostly, we torture ourselves with thinking, oh, if I move, I'm a bad yogi. If I don't move, I'm a good yogi. There's no I in either case. <laughs> In either case, whether you move or not is not the issue. It's do you see through the illusion that there is someone in there, in here, making the decision? If we see through the illusion, we're free of suffering. If we don't see through the illusion, we remain caught and identified with the self that suffers. difficult to see. Uh, I don't want to minimize how extraordinarily subtle this experience of no separate self is. It's subtle. It's very subtle. And we all have seen it hundreds of times, thousands of times. Each time we see it, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, we loosen the glue of identification. Mindfulness is the solvent of the glue of identification. And we just pour a little more solvent on that identification and it gets weaker and weaker and weaker, thinner and thinner, until we can live without that identification. We experience it. We experience everything in our life. The same as with the identification, except we don't 
suffer. What makes our decisions? If we're unaware and not paying attention, habits of greed, hatred, and delusion make the decision. If we are practicing mindfulness and we're bringing awareness to the process, then non-greed, non-hatred, out of non-delusion makes the decision. Wisdom. Essentially, wisdom makes the decision. When you practice mindfulness, unconscious habits do not have their way. We make choices. We Choices have to be made, you know, throughout life. Many millions of choices every day, decisions, impulses. Which ones do we act on? Do we act unconsciously out of habits that reinforce a sense of self and a belief in a sense of self? Or do we make conscious this process of intention and let wisdom make the decision. One last experience that the Buddha identified as easily, frequently, and uh, ubiquitously causing uh, a conditioning identification with self. And that is the experience of pleasant and unpleasant feelings which we take to be me or mine. Every experience, every moment, there is a pleasant or unpleasant feeling in the body or in the mind due to sensory contact. Ordinarily, we think, I feel good. I feel bad. I enjoy this, I don't enjoy that. What is it that's actually feeling pleasant and unpleasant? Is it we, me, some me in here that is feeling it? Or is this, as the Buddha pointed to, a function of the mind, Vedana? Vedana feels experience. Vedana is feelings. The Buddha identified this capacity of feeling pleasant and unpleasant is a natural condition of the mind. There's nothing personal about it. It's not you. It's not yours. The body feels, or the Vedana feels the body, Vedana feels the mind. It's a function of the mind to feel. And we've seen the mind is really not ours. It's not who we are. And yet, if we don't look closely, we will say, I enjoy chocolate. No, you don't. Vedana, feeling, enjoys chocolate. except some of us.
We all like chocolate. But it's not a personal um, self in here that's enjoying the chocolate. It's a natural functioning capacity of the mind. It's got nothing to do with a self. Difficult to see. I don't want to minimize it. It is a difficult process to see. But as we practice, as we stay close to the reality behind these appearances, this appearance of self, every moment of clear seeing Vedana or feeling, clear seeing of the mind, the process of the mind, the intentions in the mind, the uh, the reality of the body behind the appearance. Each time we see any of these experiences, we loosen our identification with self. Now, how many times have we not seen this process of identification? Hundreds of millions of moments we haven't seen it. And each one of those has conditioned this belief in a self. Every moment of mindfulness is a deconditioning moment of that belief. It's not a matter of belief. It's not a matter of, I believe in no self. There, good, finished. Good luck. It's a matter of learning to live from the place of non-identification. And the only way to do that is to sit here and watch your identification and suffering, mindfulness and no suffering. And in time, we learn the habit of not picking up a sense of self and holding on. These five aggregates, the body and the four of the mind, consciousness, feeling, perception, or uh, memories, and uh, volition is one of the sankharas. These five aggregates, the Buddha saw, proliferate in the mind. The sense of self that we see through is a mirage, like a phantom. It is ephemeral, it's evanescent, it's insubstantial, it's ungovernable. And if we look closely, we see these characteristics of our mind and our body. It's evanescent. It evaporates upon contact. It's insubstantial. When you try to actually touch the body with the mind, you can't find it. When you look for the substance behind a thought, there's nothing there. The self is less than a rainbow. It's an appearance in the mind, but it has no inherent self-existence. By paying careful and close attention, we see through this illusion, we free ourselves from unnecessary suffering. This is the deepest wisdom of the Buddha's realization. 
of the truth, the way things are. So let us sit for a few moments and let this go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.